Let's turn to Joshua chapter 3, and uh, I'd like to read this. We're going to read it together, and I thought we'd uh, just do it slightly different, and we'll read alternate verses. I'll read the odd verses. I'll start off, and then if everyone can read the alternate Yes, alternate verse. I'll read the even, you read the alternate verses. No, odd, that's right. Anyway, you read the next one after me. Okay, so we'll start, it's, it's Joshua 3. We're going to follow the New King James together. And I'll start off. Okay, so Joshua 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. And they set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was. Carry on, after three days. So, yeah, thank you. So it was, after three days, that the officers went through the camp. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. About 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. That's why I asked you to read the, the even verses. <laughs> Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Take for yourselves Twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. When the people set out from their camp, cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. 
And as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its bank, banks during the whole time of harvest, the waters which came down from the upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Yeah. Let's pray, shall we? And so, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Almighty God, you have kept this word, preserved it, and it's here for us to read. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand and to learn what you have to say, hear what you have to say to us. Lord, we need you. I need you. We need you, Lord, to hear and to respond, to obey with obedient hearts. Please come among us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going through this book of Joshua. And uh, we've reached chapter... Three, as uh, Tommy's reminded us, the book of Joshua, it's a picture. Uh, of course, it, it's a real event that happened, but it's also a picture of the wonderful inheritance that is in Christ. And uh, as you, I'm sure you will remember, the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea to start with. They came out of Egypt. God brought them to the Red Sea, and he made a way across out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. But then they failed to get into the Promised Land. They came to the Jordan, and they sent spies out, and the spies came back. Ten reported it was impossible. Two said it was okay, and they listened to the ten. And so for the next 40 years, they actually spent those years traveling around the wilderness, sometimes camping, sometimes moving, until finally... Here in chapter 3, that they're now ready to enter that promised land, which was promised as an inheritance. One of the crucial issues that we have to face as we come to this book and we get further into the book is whether many of the miraculous things that are recorded actually ever happened. Today we'll be thinking about the, the crossing of the Jordan, crossing over the River Jordan. This chapter tells us that that was a miracle. That actually God stopped the river when it was in full flow. In fact, it heaped up as a bank some miles away. Later on in uh, chapter 6, we'll be coming to the, the city of Jericho. And we're told there that after traversing the, the, the city, a number of times, those walls fell down. God caused those walls to fall down. Later on in chapter 10, we'll find God actually stopped the sun. From shine, not from shining, from moving. And uh, for a whole day to allow a battle to be fought. And there's been a very, I would say, dangerous trend 
in Christian circles, and this began right back in the 19th century, gathered prayer, especially in academic circles, but has spread out into the wider church, um, never mind out of a, outside, of the, outside of the church, but within the church. A, a trend which says that the accounts of the Bible are not historically true, necessarily, or scientifically accurate, but they actually contain moral truth. They contain spiritual truth. And of course all of that, what, the, what is said, is designed to, to fit in with the scientific age and be more acceptable in the scientific age. So that way of thinking would look at the creation account as, as a moral story. It, it communicates truth, but it wasn't scientific or it's not historically accurate. So Adam and Eve weren't real men and women, they sort of were representative of man and woman. And the same would be said in, in this view of, of, of Noah, in Noah's day. And the flood, it wasn't really a flood that covered the whole earth, it was, it was a local flood. And certainly these things about crossing the Red Sea, crossing the Jordan, the sun standing still, the, the, the walls of Jericho, and later on, about Jonah and the great fish. I mean, some find that hard to swallow. They say that these, these stories just cannot be believed. You know, they're not actual events. But that doesn't matter, so they say, because they contain truths, moral truths, spiritual truths. This, this, in other words, this is a book of values. That's how, it, how the argument goes. Spiritual truths, but not necessarily historically accurate. But I want to say that taking that position is a very, very shaky and dangerous position to take. For a start, it discredits the whole teaching of Jesus, who took these as historical events and the writings of the New Testament. It's very hard. If you take that view, to then say, well, actually, I believe what the New Testament writers say, because the New Testament writers all agree that those things were historical events. So if you, don't believe, if you can't believe what that, they say about that, you can't believe anything they say. And if we discount what we see as impossible, where do you stop? Where, where does it stop? Where, where do you draw the line? What about the virgin birth? That's impossible. And the angels, all those accounts of the angels around the virgin birth. What about all the miracles of Jesus? When you come to the New Testament, hundreds and hundreds of miracles, many of which are recorded. And what about the events around the crucifixion, the, the splitting of the veil, the, the darkness that descended during the day? What about the resurrection? If you can't believe one, then you can't believe anything miraculous. You can't believe that. You can't believe that Jesus actually raised from the dead. Surely that's just a, a moral story that actually Jesus' influence just carries on and on and on and on if you take that view. And what about the ascension? That Jesus actually rose from the earth? You see how if, if you don't take one, or you say, well, actually, I don't believe that, we'll, we'll understand that from a, per, a different perspective, a moral perspective, then where do you stop? Where, where does it end? If you take out the miracles of the Bible, 
you're left with a purely human history. You're cutting God's part out and it's just seeing it as a, a human record. So the, the miraculous is absolutely fundamental to understanding the Bible. If you, if you take out the miraculous, all you're left with, well, you, you, you have nothing reliable in here. You really don't. You don't have anything of value at all. And I'm, I, I was thinking about this. I am so glad that I settled this in my own mind when I was a youngest Christian. Now, I know I, I looked into it extensively. I looked into his, the archaeological evidence. And it's not that you need archaeological evidence to trust the Bible. But, you know, all the archaeological evidence down the, down the centuries, especially in the last 200 years, have confirmed the accuracy of the Bible. Absolutely, in terms of historical events and people who lived. And that, that saved me from shipwreck. It really has. And really saved me from lots of trouble. You know, I can honestly say that if the Bible said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I believe it. So, this is the truth. And if you struggle with that, then you need to go to God to really ask him for your help, for his help in that. Because as we go through this, believing this record literally happened is absolutely crucial to God speaking to us through it. So that's sort of a, a bit of a a background really, or introduction, and you'll see why that's important as, as we go through. Let, let's just go to the, the text now. I want to show you things that had to happen for the children of Israel to enter the promised land and to possess their inheritance. First of all, the cloud had to give way to the ark. The cloud had to give way to the ark. Right up until the people of Israel went into the promised land, God had led the people of Israel miraculously. Just turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. If you've got a Bible, um, verse 21. Exodus 13, verse 21. And 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So God created this pillar of cloud by day and this miraculous, and it is miraculous, pillar of fire by night. And when those pillars of cloud or fire settled, the people settled. When they lifted, the people began to move. That, that was God's provision every day for 40 years Right through the 40 years, they trekked through the wilderness 
And God miraculously provided that. I don't know if you, can you imagine if over this church there was a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire at night? I mean, people would flock to us, wouldn't they? To find out what it's about. You wouldn't have to tell anybody where the church was to see this pillar of cloud or pillar of fire. See, this is one of the reasons why I took the trouble to talk about miraculous things. All of this Old Testament history is about, actually, miracle. Now, now the scriptures don't say specifically when the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night stopped, but all the indications are that it was when they crossed and entered the promised land, into the promised land. Because actually that was when the manna stopped. When God stopped providing every day the manna. Just uh, chapter Joshua 5. If you turn to Joshua 5, verse 12, just back uh, forward from our text. Joshua 5, 5 verse 12. Now the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So God sent, through those 40 years, the manna. And he also sent quails, birds, birds by the wind every day for the people of Israel to eat so they had food every day. God miraculously provided for them. Manna was like a, a wafer-like substance. It formed on the ground every morning. And the people tasted or collected it, and it tasted like coriander, it says in the Bible. And so God provided that. Do you know what manna means, the word? It means, what is it? You know, what is it? <laughs> It was so wonderful, so miraculous, so satisfying. So they called it manna. What is it? And there you wives, all these years, your husband's had his meal, and he said, it's like manna from heaven, and you thought he was enjoying it. <laughs> he said, what is it? <laughs> That's what he was saying. That stopped when they entered the Jordan. That, and it was replaced by the natural food of the, of the land. And, so the, and, and also the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, stopped, it seems, when they entered the land. You see, go back to Joshua 3 and uh, verse 2. I think this makes it clear. Joshua 3, verse 2 and 3. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. And they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from the place, your place, and go after it. Right? So before it was the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire that was to direct them. But here he's saying, no, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and the, Le of the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. So it was to be the ark of the covenant they were to follow. What was the ark of the covenant? Well, it was a, just a chest, 
<laughs> a, a wooden chest. But it was overlaid with gold. And in it, there were three things. There was the rod of Aaron, and there were the two tablets of stone on which were the Ten Commandments. So that ark represented, symbolized the presence of God going before them. See, God, God doesn't do anything haphazardly. He doesn't do anything sort of by chance. He deliberately removed the external signs, the manna, the quails, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. And those things stopped. Why did they stop? In order to fix their eyes on the ark. So their gaze had to be from now on, especially on God, on God's presence with them. So by removing the cloud and the fire and pointing to the ark, God was literally saying, or in effect saying, look, it's time for you to look to me. It's time for your faith to grow and mature. You need to grow up in your faith. It's time for you to live by faith, not by sight. The children of Israel had great battles to face. They had enemies to overcome. They had land to possess. They had to break down strongholds that were stronger than them. And so their their cloud-dependent experience had to give way to the ark-centered life. And this is a picture to us. It's a picture to you and me. If you like, it's a sermon to us. There'll always be those people who will say that it's more spiritual to have a pillar of cloud type of Christianity. Where supernatural signs and miraculous occurrences are happening all the time. And if you don't have those, then you're sort of subnormal in your Christian life. Because God meant you to have those every time, all the time in your life. But I say this, if we are to grow in faith, really to grow in faith, and we to grow and mature in faith into the deeper things and the greater things that God has for us, we need to move from the external props to the internal presence of God and to the leading of the Holy Spirit through His Word. Now, I'm not saying... please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the miraculous doesn't happen. In fact, I praise God. God is still a God of miracles. That's why I spent that time looking at this right at the beginning. I really do believe God is a God of the miracle. Wonderful God of intervention. I believe that with all of my heart, God miraculously answers prayer in wonderful ways. And I, I do, and I've experienced divine interventions of God. But they are not meant to be the normal, everyday experience. Not these great, amazing things that we would love to have. I'd love to have angels appearing to me and telling me the way forward and what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. You know, I'd love to have supernatural miracles happening all the time. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But actually, that's not the normal way that God wants you and I to grow by. And crossing over into God's will 
and moving on in faith and growing up in our faith, that requires a new maturity, a new discernment of God's presence. The story is told of a man who was asleep in his house when he was suddenly woken up and Jesus appeared to him in the room and it was filled with light. And the Lord said to him, I have work for you to do. And he showed the man a large rock and told him to push against the rock with all of his might. And this the man did for many hours and many days. He worked at it from sunup to sundown. His shoulder was set squarely against the rock and he pushed with all of his might. And every night the man returned to his home, worn out, wondering if his day had been spent in vain. Seeing that the man was discouraged, Satan entered the picture, placing thoughts into the man's mind, such as, what's the point? You're never going to move this. You've been at it so long, and you haven't moved it an inch. And the man began to get the impression that the task was impossible. He was a failure because he wasn't able to move this massive stone. And those thoughts discouraged and disheartened him. He began to ease up in his efforts. Why kill yourself like this? I'll just put in the time. I'll just make a token effort. That'll be good enough. And that's what he did. Until one day, he decided to take his troubles to the Lord. He said, Lord, I've worked so hard, so long in your service. I've used all my strength to do what you asked me to do. Yet after all this time, I haven't even nudged that rock half a millimeter. What am I doing wrong? Why am I failing? And the Lord said, son, when I asked you to serve me, you accepted. I told you to push against the rock with all your strength. And that you have done. But never once did I mention that I expected you to move the rock. At least not by yourself. Your task was to push. And now you come to me all discouraged, thinking that you failed. And are ready to give up. But look at yourself. Your arms are strong and muscled. Your back lean and powerful, your hands calloused and hard, and your legs have become massive and sturdy. You've grown so much strength. And now your ability far surpasses that for which I've called you. You still haven't succeeded in moving the rock. But you've been obedient. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's a parable, obviously. It's a parable, actually, of 1 Peter 1, I think, verse 6. Don't need to turn to it. Where Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And I haven't taken those trials away. So that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's working in your life. He's working in your situation. He's working in your circumstances. He's working when it goes hard and when it's easy. It doesn't matter. God's working. 
And he's growing your faith. He's, he's developing that faith. He's developing your, your love for God in ways that you hadn't expected. And that's why the cloud gave way to the ark. Secondly, and I'll, I'll whip through these two, last two points, the safety of the shore gave way to the uncertainty of the riverbed. The safety of the shore gave way to the uncertainty of the riverbed. Let's just read Joshua 3, verse 13 through 17. Verse 13, and it shall come to pass... As soon as, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of our harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over the Jordan. And, uh, Jerry, sorry, lost him. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. So here's the people of Israel. They're at the Jordan. The river, it's overflowing its banks. I remember watching a television program some, some years back now and they were testing <coughs> what it took for water to flow in a channel where people were standing before those people were swept away. It was an experiment. Apparently, it, well, it was a t at a time when a number of people had lost their lives um, in, in flowing water. And I remember they had, they had, I can't remember how many, two or three men in... They had life-saving jackets on. They were tethered by rope to the side so they were secure. And they let water through this channel. And it wasn't until it was about, it was only a couple of inches of fast-flowing water that caused those men to lose their feet. You don't need much flowing water to be dangerous. And so here they are, the children of Israel. They were, they, if, if numbers, if you think the numbers had grown since coming out of Egypt, it's reckoned with all the children there would have been about two and a half million people. This was a massive undertaking. And as they approach the river, it's still flowing. It was overflowing. And it seemed as though they would be swept to their death, overwhelmed. Sometimes it can feel like that, you know, in, in God's work. It really can. Sometimes, you may not have experienced this, but most Christians experience at times being overwhelmed. Time, at times when you just feel you cannot, you just, unless God does something, you're going to be swept through or swept away. Actually, that's not a bad place to be in. Because it really does cause you to trust God, doesn't it? To really look to God when you feel like that. 
But here, here was God's plan. The spiritual leaders were instructed to lead the people. The priests went to, were to go first. Interestingly, it was only the priests who got wet feet and cold feet. Nobody else did. And in leadership, there are times when you get cold feet, I tell you that. Doubts come, you start wondering. I, I, this is true of the building project for me. Over the, we've been going a long time. I've had cold feet at times, wondering, is this right? Like this? And just at the right time, God's brought lovely confirmations. We're on the go, we're right, we're in this. But yes, you do get doubts. That sometimes in, in leadership, that's what you face. And if you're in a leadership role, if you, are, have, if you have doubts about whatever it is, and you, you, you get the cold feet, don't worry, that's norm. That's par for the course. That's actually one of the blessings of leadership. But the people were asked to follow, what does it say? Is it 2,000 cubits? I think it says 2,000 cubits. Verse 4. There shall be a space between you and it. So that's it is the ark that the priests were carrying. So the people were to be 2,000 cubits by measure. A, a cubit is a foot and a half. So 2,000 cubits is 3,000 feet. 1,000 yards. That's, me- that's imperial, isn't it? Well, say 1,000 metres, okay? 1,000 metres. It's about two-thirds of a mile. That's also imperial. But anyway, two, about two-thirds of a mile between the people and the ark. So, by the time... And if you t- how long would that take a large group of people to walk two-thirds of a mile? It'd take a fair while, wouldn't it? But probably half an hour with children. So for the first of the people to reach the edge of the water, after the priests had dipped their toes in, there was a gap of about half an hour. So praise God for that thousand-yard gap. Because if the people had seen what the priests were seeing, I don't think they would have gone over, right? They wouldn't. They wouldn't have gone over. But actually, by the time they got to the water, the water had started to recede. I mean, that was a real test for the Joshua and the priests. Especially the priests. They were in the water and nothing was happening. And they were waiting with wet feet, cold feet. And the river seemed to be taking ages to subside. And suddenly, the roar of the river subsided, began to die down, and that water level began to fall, and they saw the dry ground appearing. And it's true, you know, when leaders act in faith, there is often a time lag before the fruit of that faith is seen. So it does take courage to do that. To keep standing when little is happening. And that's true in our Christian lives. You know, sometimes you stand and you, you trust in God and nothing seems to be happening. You, you sometimes it seems as though God's deserted you. But he hasn't. He hasn't. Always remember, like these, these priests, what, what they were seeing, actually, the, the river had already stopped. That was, that was upstream. God had stopped the river. All they were seeing was sort of the residue coming. And sometimes that's what it is in our Christian lives. God's already answered. We stand by faith on those promises. But sometimes we don't actually see the fruit of that. 
until a little bit later. What you're seeing is just the water left in the pipe, as it were. The flow's already been cut by stream. And God's already said yes and amen to that promise, that prayer. And you can just hold on to that. I think I'm going to have to cut quite a lot out. So let me just go to the last point very quickly. So we've had the cloud gave way to the ark. The safety of the shore gave way to the uncertainty of the riverbed. Lastly, the Red Sea miracle gave way to the Jordan miracle. The Red Sea miracle. God did something amazing at the Red Sea. Moses lifted up his staff and the waters parted. The people of Israel at the Jordan might have expected God to do something exactly the same. But God God's not bound by habit, is he? Or, 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 or habitual practice. God did something totally different. Totally different to the Red Sea. It was miraculous, but it was different. Why? Well, the Red Sea represented salvation. Israel were taken out of Egypt, out of the world, if you like. They were saved from that. They were given freedom to follow the, the law of God. They were led by God. It, it represents salvation. They were covered by the blood of the lintel. They hid under the, behind that shield of the, of, the, of the blood of the lamb, the blood of the shed lamb. But Jordan was different. Jordan represents the consecration as they enter into the land of blessing that God had for them. And if you and I are to enter into all that God has for us, it begins with consecration. It begins with, consecration is just dedication of ourselves to Christ. It's making Jesus king. It's got to start there. That's why God caused the children of Israel to, to, to stop. Just uh, lastly, look, look at verse 5. And Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves. The NIV has consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. There was a pause. They were ready to go, but no, he said, no. Sanctify yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart. And so it's sanctify yourselves as well. Paul said this, and I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's consecration. I love, I've said this before, but I love the way that the Puritans used to call consecration. They described consecration in terms of restoring lost property. In other words, we're just giving back to God what actually belongs to him in the first place. That's what's pictured in the crossing of the Jordan. It's about crowning Jesus as king. Saying, Lord, Lord, I'm no longer living for me. I want to live for you and I want you to be pleased and first in my life. So that calls for obedience and faith. And the rewards of that are phenomenal. Because children of Israel began to enter into all that God had for them. Let's pray. I'm not going to uh, sing a closing song. We'll just uh, take a moment to let these thoughts settle in our minds. And I want you to take away from this something that uh, you feel that God has uh, impressed on your spirit. 
maybe encouraged you with or challenged you with. It might be a personal word for someone this morning about something that you're going through. But let's uh, bring ourselves to that place of renewed consecration. Renewed belief in the word of God. And a willingness to step out in faith even when we don't feel that things are happening. To keep trusting God. God's building our, he's he's giving us a muscular faith. uh, uh, Building our spiritual muscles as we trust in him. And keep trusting. So Lord we thank you that your word is absolutely trustworthy. Thank you that you've preserved it, Lord, from all error. And we can rely on it totally. Thank you, Lord, that we can stake our life on this word. Lord, I pray for any who might, be, who might struggle with that. Lord, would you give them confidence to be able to trust in your word? Knowing that God is not a man that he can lie. Knowing that all scripture is inspired by God. So Lord, just bless us with that faith, we pray. And Lord, we do thank you. Thank you that you're a God of miracles today. I thank you, Lord, that you are acting and intervening in so many different ways. But we also, Lord, want to say thank you that you're a God who is at work in the details of our lives. Not in a spectacular way. Nevertheless, in a very real way. Thank you, Lord. Help us to see your activity. Help us to see, Lord, that you are caring for us in bringing so many different things together. Help us to live by faith, Lord, when we see our prayers answered quickly or when they're not. Help us, Lord, to trust you when circumstances are great, but also when they're not. Help us, Lord, to really be able to rejoice in you in all circumstances. And then, Lord, we ask as well, and we say to you, Lord, we we want to consecrate ourselves to you. We want you to be Lord. We want Jesus to be King. So, Father God, Help us to come to that place where we step out in faith. Trust you that you're able to keep what we've committed unto that day. So Lord, help us in that we pray. Not just now. May it be a daily consecration. Where we really do, because of our love for you, say, Lord, have first place in our lives. So Lord, hear our prayer. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for our worshipping, being able to worship you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for each other. Lord, bless us, we pray. Help us to live for you and to love you in every way, Lord, that we live out our lives. So part us with that blessing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.